Uh, hi, today I'm having a very special guest on the show. I'm getting Jeff Snyder, who is the Director of Global Research at Alhambra Investments. Uh, Jeff claims he understands the monetary order because he's not an economist. I thought he'd, be, he'd have a valuable perspective on, on all the uh, craziness that's going around in the world today. So uh, Jeff, could you tell us about your career and how you got here to this point? Well, I started out pretty much as a uh, portfolio manager, tried to get into finance and that kind of thing, you know, many years ago. And as a portfolio manager, an aspiring portfolio manager, did a lot of equity research and things like that. This was the 1990s after all, and that, that's mm -hmm. kind of what everybody did at the time in the finance industry. And as I was doing a lot of research, looking through balance sheets and stuff, uh, you know, obviously ran across bank balance sheets and some of the things that were on those started to read into some of the footnotes and realized that what the banks were doing, what they were actually doing was almost nothing like what they taught you in school or on textbooks or in economics. Mm -hmm. And you kind of wondered, kind of wondered at that time, you know, what, what's going on here? Like what's a repurchase agreement? Why are there so many of them, for example, mm -hmm. what are all these derivatives for? Mm -hmm. I mean, it seems like there's, there's tons of derivatives. I mean, this is the 1990s where, a few trillion was a, was a real huge number. So banks were doing all of these other things that I noticed, and it seems like nobody else wanted to notice. And when I'd ask questions about it, nobody wanted to answer them. Nobody even wanted to think about it. I mean, most of the response I got was, hey, why do you care? Everything's great right now. Why would you even want to rock the boat? Just mm -hmm. put your head down, buy some stocks, and think yourself of a genius, right? That's really what it was about. And um, it just it never sat well with me. And, and so it was really tugging on those threads, seeing what these things are in these balance sheets and what banks were actually up to and realizing that there's this whole global ecosystem out there. And not only that, there's an entire history behind it that goes back even further into the 1950s and 60s and just understanding that the world doesn't really operate the way, way you're taught. And that explains a lot about, first of all, how the world got that way, but also the 2008 crisis how that manifested, what actually happened during it had, not, had little, very little to do with subprime mortgages. Mm -hmm. And then everything that's happened thereafter, which is you know, a, a global economy that seemed to be able to grow and flourish and do all sorts of really good things up until 2007. Since 2007, hasn't been able to do much that's good, only creates more and more problems and you know, anti-globalization, fragmentation, all sorts of negative factors, political and social people. All of these things are related to this hidden monetary ecosystem that for a very, very long time, economics has completely and utterly ignored. Okay, those are some really interesting things. So I took your Eurodollar University course, and one of the things you maintain, you say in that, in that course is that the Fed has lost control over the dollar's money supply. And that is one of the things that, that, that differentiates the post-2007 order from the pre-2007 order. Could you explain that? Well, the, I think uh, when I say that they lost control, they really never, never really had it. And I think they realized that much farther back in time than, than maybe most people realize themselves. The Fed realized in the 60s that uh, this euro dollar system had taken over many of the functions of the global reserve currency. And therefore, it was also having a, a direct impact on domestic monetary conditions. So it wasn't just like there are these dollars floating around outside the US and okay, that's a nice thing. And you know, Europeans are largely using these dollar supplies. It was that this, this euro dollar system had become a complete and comprehensive monetary ecosystem in which US banks were also participating in equal part. So we're going way back here. We're going back into the 60s, late 60s and early 70s by the, by the time the Fed realizes this stuff was, was causing all sorts, of mono, all sorts of havoc, not just in terms of inflation, but also the Federal Reserve and any central bank's ability to understand the monetary component to inflation, which as everybody should know, inflation is a monetary phenomenon. And if you can't, if you can't really get your head around a global monetary system, because first of all, as, a, as the Federal Reserve, their, their authority ends at the boundary of the United States. These are dollar supplies outside the US. And second of all, these are not actual physical dollars. These are bank liabilities and bank assets. So this is basically virtual currency. So it's a virtual currency outside the US in which domestic banks are taking a huge part is having direct effects on economic conditions, including inflation inside the US, as well as other parts around the world. You can see the Fed's problem. <laughs> they haven't just then, lost control yeah, of the money right. supply. They can no longer define it. They can't measure it. They can't target it. They can't even define the stuff. In fact, that's just 
if you read through uh, much of the discussions at the time, what you'll see is they really didn't know what to do. I mean, you know, they knew M1 was obsolete. They thought M2 was becoming obsolete, wanted to move toward an M3, but, you know, even that was a, a risky proposition. So the monetary banking system had evolved outside the Fed. And so the Fed didn't lose control. It sort of just said, it woke up one day and said, wait a minute, banks are doing all of this monetary stuff without us. And so what do we do as a central bank? Well, we realized, first of all, we're not a central bank anymore mm -hmm. because we don't do money. And we know we can't do money because this, is, this bank and money evolution never stops. It continues to grow and grow and grow. So the Fed said, you know what? We're not going to be a central bank because there's no way for us to be a central bank. So we'll implement what's called expectations-based policy, which is essentially a, a, a tacit admission that we'll just give up on the money stuff. We'll let the banking system take care of the monetary details because that's what the banking system is doing. And so long as we influence banks' behavior in a predictable way, we don't need to know the details. And it sounds weird because this is supposed to be a central bank. And central banks are supposed to do money, but yet on its most basic fundamental level, monetary policy since these 1970s and 80s has been to abandon money and say, look, we'll just signal to people and that will have to be good enough because we really have no freaking clue what these people are, what these banks are doing in the monetary system. So those are, you, you basically make two separate claims there. The first is that money uh, created by banks by issuing liabilities outside the US, which typically are deposits by non-Americans in Europe, for example, and uh, affect monetary conditions in the US. And your second claim is that even within the, in the US, most of the money created by the Fed isn't the money that, that affects people isn't base money, but it's rather M M3 or M4 that 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 uh, that people use in their daily lives. Now, could you explain to our listeners how, for example, money created outside the US, that is, I live in Singapore, I take a dollar deposit at a bank in Singapore, but why should that affect the monetary, the money supply of someone inside the US? Well, because what happens is, is you have this robust outside offshore, that's really what euro dollar means, euro the term euro appended to the word to the currency dollar doesn't mean euro as in the European common currency, nor does it really mean strictly Europe. Euro simply means offshore. So this is offshore dollar. This mm -hmm. is dollars outside the US. And as I said before, these are virtual, this is a virtual currency system and it's largely reserveless because there's really no cash. There's no physical cash in it. There certainly isn't any gold. So it's all about it's it's all about computer screens, banks agreeing that they owe each other this or that or whatever and settling up uh, after, after every day's trading sessions and making sure that everybody balances out. And so all of the virtual currencies that are owed here, there, and everywhere else are definitely doing that. So where that becomes a domestic issue is when domestic banks are borrowing essentially from this offshore dollar market to accomplish US domestic type of, of transactions or uh, it's, uh, whatever, any type of economic activity that's financed by these dollars offshore. That would be a, a domestic component of the monetary system contributing to uh, economic factors inside the United States. In fact, that's exactly what happened starting in the late, probably earlier in the 60s, but in, in size in the later 1960s, um, the Fed and the Treasury Department found that U.S. banks were essentially, because of Regulation Q, transferring deposits to their London, often London subsidiaries, not just London, but the uh, mostly London subsidiaries, but then borrowing back in interbank loans from the euro dollar market. And then they, of course, they didn't just borrow back what they transferred. They also borrowed back whatever they needed occasionally, rather than say, going to the discount window or borrowing federal funds. Sometimes it was cheaper to borrow in euro dollars than it would be into uh, other domestic dollar sources. So banks were using the euro dollar market, banks inside the United States were using this offshore dollar market to fund their activities inside the US. Hmm. Okay, I understand that. But when we talk about money today, that is in 2021, we never talk about M0, M1, M2. The fact is that the Fed is that banks in the banks in any country control the amount of money, the money supply. And is it because when banks lend, new money is formed? And how does that process work? Where the Fed loses control of money supply, and uh, and banks uh, which which lend um, make most of the money that is used. Well, you know, you don't need a central bank to create money. 
That's it's, in fact, it's rarely ever been the case. Historically speaking, currency has been always usually been a function of something else. It's usually a private function. Mm -hmm. You know, going back even further in history, you'll see that private currency and private money. I mean, bank currency in the United States before the uh, before the Federal Reserve was implemented. I mean, banks issued their own forms of currency. Um, you don't need a central bank to issue money because let's face it, central banks are, are usually really bad at doing something like that. And that's not really what a central bank is supposed to do. So central bank is supposed to be sort of a safety valve, as Walter Badgett had said back in the 19th century in Lombard Street, you know, the kind of the, the lender of last resort, not the, the creator of money of first resort. That's not what a central bank is job supposed to be. And so the private market in, in, uh, most of the time is the central source of currency creation and elasticity. The central bank is supposed to come in and say, okay, things are going bad. Let me fix it. So you don't need the Fed. You don't need some kind of central bank to create currency. It's, it's always been, I mean, especially in any fractional depository system, uh, which the euro dollar system is a, is a type of fractional, Europe, uh, fractional depository system, what you'll see is exactly that. that you know, we don't need a, a central bank to create currency. The banks do that all their own, using their own governance and rules and and things like that, constraints and all sorts of other things that have nothing to do with whatever Jay Powell or whatever Federal Reserve chairman it says at any given time. So it's not strictly a function, nor should it be a function of central bank policy. Central banks have only decided that they want to they influence bank behavior really recently as they've taken on a more comprehensive role, which is, again, as I said, they no longer target money because they can't, they don't know what it is. So they have to take on more of a a, a uh, overview, which is to target economic aggregates like inflation or unemployment, and sort of just say, hey, we're going to wave our hands around and signal to the, to the system what we want them to do, because unemployment isn't at its, uh, isn't at its maximum level, or unemployment is not at its maximum level, or inflation is too high or something. You know, rather than saying, look, money supply is this, it's supposed to be that, let's fix it. They can't do that. The banking system does therefore takes care of all of those details because it's the banking system that creates elasticity as well as has, has led to inelasticity over the last 14 years. Mm -hmm. So the words elasticity and inelasticity, could you explain that? Because I don't think most people would be familiar with it. Yeah, ideally you want money supply and money demand to match up, right? Because in any economic system that's growing, you're going to have more need for more money because there's more activity that needs to be, you know, essentially financed because that's what money is. Money is not wealth. Money is a tool. It's an economic tool such that we don't have to get into a, an inefficient barter situation. Um, you know, an economy without money is possible, but it's not going to be a very good economy. An economy that has a functioning monetary system is going to be very fluid and efficient and flexible which allows it to grow as best as it possibly can. So ideally what you wanna have is you wanna have money supply and demand balancing. Now there's always, you know, that's, that's sort of an ideal, right? Because there's always problems about, oh, speculation and other sorts of maybe not so good uses of money. And maybe we don't, we have to restrain money supply and some things like that uh, before we get into asset bubbles and things like, uh, things that get out of control. But, you know, the, the idea is that there needs to be some form of dynam dynamic part of the money supply so that any growing economy can easily or best or somehow match supply versus demand. And that's what elasticity means. So that if legitimate economic demand increases, therefore the legitimate, legitimate demand for money increases, we want the currency supply to be elastic so that it can easily respond to that increase in demand without creating frictions or harms restraining growth, right? Because right. we want legitimate economic demand. The last thing you want is legitimate economic demand to be to be constrained by a lack of money. That's just, I mean, you, you know, you want to, you're building a house. The last thing you want to do is, is uh, be constrained from building your house because you don't have an electric saw, right? You don't want to have to use a hand saw. It's just, mm -hmm. okay. If you've got the tools available, you want them to be available so that you can use them in, in doing whatever you're trying to do. So that's really what elasticity means. And inelasticity is obviously the situation where if there's legitimate economic demand that isn't being met by the money supply or currency supply, that's an inelastic situation that then creates all sorts of potential problems, not just in the economy, but also in markets too, because there's supposed to be markets for money that allows this sort of elasticity as well as, uh, as, well as the banking system creating supply. 
So one example for that would be that the economy is growing, but banks aren't willing to lend, which means that the money supply is growing less fast than the uh, broader real GDP, than the rest of the economy. And that would cause problems for various things. That is, um, obviously, as bank lending reduces, the liquidity conditions get worse. So, so people find it hard to borrow and build houses and make companies. Would that be an accurate description of what you're saying? Yeah, that's exactly it. Because, you know, again, it, money is a tool that allows its, its most uh, potent efficiency or most potent use is economic efficiency. And it, it, a robust dynamic monetary system that responds to the dynamic demands or the dynamic changes in the, any economic system is one that's going to be likewise dynamic. You know, currency is a, a most elastic. We don't want it to be completely rigid. We want it to be able to, to uh, you know, change and flow and ebb with the system as it changes and flows and progresses. Now, we've had a dramatic expansion of the base money in the U.S. from 2007 or so. And if I get it right, your perspective is that it doesn't matter because it's reserves in the central bank. It's money by banks in the central bank. So what exactly happens here? The federal yeah, it's not, reserve You can call it base money. money, but it's not used as base uh, money. It's Therefore, it's money. not. You know, and I no, and that's the problem that we run into, right? Because everybody is told bank reserves are money. The Fed is a central bank, and it's printing money. Therefore, you know, money supply has gone way up. No, mm -hmm. the supply of bank reserves has gone way up, but that doesn't mean what we're told or what we're supposed to mean. Okay. You know, I think you were you, what you were just saying is that exactly correct. If the banking system doesn't actually use bank reserves as base money, then it's really not. And, it, and the fact that we continue to call it base money is a problem of economics, not a problem of actual function. You know, it, it's the system works how the system works, whether we realize it or not, doesn't matter. <laughs> okay? It's, it's going to do what it's going to do. And if you if you continue to believe that bank reserves are base money, you will be continually confused by all this because you're looking at everything the wrong way, the exact wrong way. And once you get it out of your head that bank reserves are base money and that central banks are not central and that the Fed really isn't a central bank, all of this stuff starts to make sense. Going back to monetary evolution, what happened in, in 2008, which was a global dollar shortage in this euro dollar system, and the fact that it wasn't a one-off shortage, and that's the reason why there were multiple QEs, because the Fed couldn't fix the monetary problem. They kept trying, not by printing money, but by printing expectations, by trying to get people to believe that they were printing money. And that didn't work either. That explains why over the last 14 years, growth has fallen off. There's been no inflation, despite everybody and their brother predicting inflation was going to be you know, hyperinflation and all these other things, uh, you know, 1970s style, all that, all that uh, whatever else. Um, all that, all of it, because of the Fed going, the dollar crashing, all these, these, these really bad uh, money printing uh, uh, results or outcomes that never happened because the money printing never happened. Mm -hmm. Base, bank reserves simply are a very limited use interbank accounting that doesn't spill out into the real economy, and really, even if it did or if it could, it relies upon the banks to do something. So if the Fed gives a bank bank reserves, as it, for example, in a quantitative easing transaction, the, the bank sells a bond to the central bank and gets bank reserves in return. Now it has bank reserves, you know, a higher balance of bank reserves in its account with the Fed. So what? <laughs> Unless the bank right. does something from this point on, that's all it is. Right. I mean, essentially it an asset swap. Yeah, it, the bank it, has swapped one form of asset for another. No money has been created. No, nothing has really been uh, affected. I mean, pre-QE, it could have already sold that treasury bill to someone else and lent using that cash. So it, it, it shouldn't really have made a difference. So your perspective is that banks won't lend despite the large amount of uh, reserves. But in that sense, uh, shouldn't decreasing the amount of money banks get by keeping at the Fed what is now called interest on uh reserves uh, help yeah. it because if 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 uh, the rate outside is is at two percent for example and banks get on, only one percent from uh, from depositing at at the fed shouldn't they be able to um, uh, you know make arbitrage the the difference by uh, taking their money out of the fed and lending to the real economy 
Well, that's the, the idea is that IOER has been one of the reasons to explain why banks haven't done anything. And it's, it's absolutely ridiculous because for most of the history, IOER paid almost nothing. Right. So your, your argument is essentially that banks would rather get 10 basis points at IOER than say 3% lending. And that's just, mm-hmm. it's just absolutely absurd. The reason that a bank won't lend at 3% is content to, to get a couple basis points at IOER is because they've adjusted, they've, they've perceived the risk adjusted return of lending at 3% to be greater or to be less than the almost no return at IOER, which tells you a lot about what banks perceive as the risk risk uh, risk perceptions of the uh, lending and uh, economic climate. If you're willing to just sit on reserves at a couple basis points, or as in Europe, to be pay, uh, to have to pay a penalty for bank reserves with a negative interest rate, and you still don't want to lend, that has nothing to do with the Fed or the ECB or the central bank or the bank reserves. That's the banks telling you that the monetary system, the private monetary system, the private economic climate is so bad, risks are so high that the risk adjusted returns to doing something like lending are so poor and pitiful, they'd rather sit on IOER and get nothing or as in the case of Europe, be penalized for holding reserves. So again, it's, it's a function of banks, not monetary policy or central banks. And really the, the, the role of bank reserves in that case isn't as fuel for lending anyway, because as you just pointed out, in the pre-crisis era, there were no bank reserves in the US uh, and banks lent, 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 lent. They went crazy. They didn't need bank reserves to make the cash for uh, lending in the pre-crisis era. They made the cash as it was needed. We don't need the Fed to come along with bank reserves in order for lending to happen. In fact, the, the level of bank reserves is immaterial to lending. It's really all about this accounting smoke and mirrors expectations policy which a lot of people confuse with money printing because economics has done such a poor job describing what actually happens in the real world. Mm-hmm. Now, would this mean that monetary, so given that monetary policy is effectively useless, wouldn't it, would it mean that the only way to get out of this low growth, low, in, low inflation trap is to have fiscal policy for governments to borrow on market? to borrow from markets and give it to people in the form of either direct money or infrastructure, would that be the correct solution out of this? Not at all. But that's that's the uh, solution that the top-down people love to, you know, the mm-hmm. Keynesians and neo-Keynesians love to, because everything to them has to be top-down. Mm-hmm. If the government doesn't fix it, it won't, it won't happen. That's, the, that's their view. And of course, that was the view which prevailed in Japan throughout the 1990s and 2000s, which of course, completely, utterly failed there too. In mm-hmm. fact, um, you know, the, the fiscal policy that the Japanese implemented, especially in the later 1990s, after the 1997-98 recession, mm-hmm. were in many ways comparable to what we see today. I mean, massive fiscal doses. They actually had to create a second budget to, 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 to um, hold all of this off, you know, emergency spending. Um, and then a lot of it was directly, uh, directly, um, directly implemented in the real economy through grants and things like that too. Tremendous, enormous fiscal, uh, fiscal uh, interge- inter- mm-hmm. interventions and interjections in the real economy that didn't, didn't accomplish anything other than raising the debt levels of the Japanese government. And so it's not necessarily, or I would even argue likely, that fiscal approach works either. In fact, I would argue that the fiscal approach only makes it worse. The problem isn't spending or lack of spending, the problem is you have a broken monetary system. We don't have the right tools for the job. So it seems to me the most obvious answer to that is to fix what's wrong, to fix what's broken. And if the monetary system is the banking system, then that needs to be what's fixed. And so I think the answer to the problem, it sounds like it's a chicken and egg kind of thing. Like, you know, we need banks to grow confidence so that they can lend and then the lending creates the growth, which then becomes this virtuous cycle of a, a recovery and economic growth and sustained, sustained uh, progress. But it's really about stability. We, what, what banks are really saying is, you know, as we just said with the IOER uh, comparison, what banks are really saying is they're not seeing the system or the economic climate as stable enough that they believe that they want to lend or increase their balance sheets in, in any number of different ways so that we create the monetary growth and therefore the credit growth, therefore the economic growth that leads us into recovery. What they're really saying is that the system is so damn unstable and unpredictable because central banks are, there is no backstop, there is nothing behind it, 
They would rather just sit on IOER and, and get a, a few basis points and hold the safest, most liquid investments like U.S. Treasuries as, as much as they possibly can, even though they don't yield very much, simply because the environment is unstable. We need to fix the instability of the monetary system so that that creates the, the legitimate pathway to actual recovery. Mm-hmm. Now, but uh, now the U.S. did have direct payments to people over the last year. And my guess would be that a lot of that money was spent. I mean, some of it, when there were lockdowns, was uh, saved or put into meme stocks. But then over the, over, but as you can see now, uh, retail spending, despite the massive drop in personal incomes, retail spending and personal consumption hasn't really changed. And if you look at it, I would call this a big win for fiscal policy because they prevented a huge collapse in demand. What do you have to say on that? I don't think that's true. <laughs> no, I think, look, let's, let's, let's be honest. Let's not call this stimulus though, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, fiscal aid of that sort is not stimulus. That's sort of, hey, people are hurting, let's help them out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you can say that this was a job save situation where the government said, you know, we don't want things to get any worse than we already are because we already made them worse to begin with. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's one argument. The argument is that the government stepped in and kept, this, kept the economy from, from falling even further than it did. And that's probably true, but let's not get let's not get ahead of ourselves and say, well, this is going to lead to some kind of inflationary access that's going to fix the existing deflationary or disinflationary condition that has been plaguing the system for the last 14 years because it isn't. You know, direct payments to people is stip, you know these kinds of stipends are, are definitely fiscal aid, but it's not stimulus, and it's not the answer or the panacea to all of our problems. Okay, so let's imagine you know that. Chairman Powell's term is ending soon, and then you're and let's let hypothetically let's say you're the next Fed chairman. Well, <laughs> what's your solution to this? Do you just is there no answer, or, or, or do you have a do you have some idea of what can uh, of, of, of of what can stop this uh, inflate the lack of, of inflation and growth? Well, really, you know, we're not really looking for inflation. That's that's mm-hmm. that's another misconception, I think, is that, you know, central banks want inflation. Well, no, they want inflation. We want to see a little bit of inflation because that tells us something important about these hidden monetary spaces in the real economy. Mm-hmm. If we see a little bit of inflation more than what we have over the last 14 years, that tells us that things are actually working. The stuff we can't observe, you know, Adam Smith's invisible hand, the stuff that goes on in the real economy if, if we're operating at full employment and, and the monetary system's working the way it's supposed to, that's what we'd expect to see. So it's not that we want inflation. We want to see a little bit of inflation because it helps us confirm that everything is working in the way it is. And so the lack of inflation, what that tells us is that mm, something's still not right here. And you can see it in any number of different ways, related ways too. You know, in the U.S., we have a, a tremendous amount of macro slack. I mean, the uh, participation rate still even before of 2020 and COVID, participation rate was extremely low, which economists have tried to write off for all sorts of other reasons rather than macro reasons because they want to believe QE works and that monetary policy works and all these other things. So, you know, really, it's not really about inflation, but, you know, you know, to the larger question, how do we get to the point where we get a little inflation because things are working again? It's just what I said. We need a monetary system globally that's stable enough that allows for the type of risk-taking and, and expansion activities in bank balance sheets and other things like that, that, uh, that then allow the economic system to move freely and to expand freely in a way that it used to before 2007. And it's not a simple thing. It sounds like, you know, I'm making it sound incredibly simple, right? Oh, just stable money system, right? Well, what does that even look like given where we're starting from, which is, where we're starting from is a euro dollar shadow money system that hardly anybody paid any attention to for decades. And so we don't even really know the full extent of what goes on in the monetary system. So to be able to say, let's fix it and move on to something that works is, is a huge tall order. And we're not, even in, we're not even in that position yet. We gotta get to the position where we can say, we know what exactly goes on. We have a good idea. So we gotta study the thing as it actually is before we even get to the, to the part where we can start to think about how we fix it and make it more robust and stable. So we're way, way down the road from any of those kinds of things. It's really, it's a, it's a tall order because, you know, for the last 14 years, we've been wasting our time with this QE is money printing crap. Okay. 
So my next question to be, would be that when you talk about shadow money, the repo system, the repurchase system is an important part of that. And the failure of the repo markets was what led to a large part of the liquidity crunch in 2008. So how does this actually work? For people who have no idea to this, what would you tell them so like this? How, how would you explain the repo market and its importance to the economy? Well, first of all, the repo market is the true lender of last resort in the world. It's not the Fed, it's the repo. If, if you've got trouble, you, you can go in the repo market. What the repo market is, is a secured interbank lending uh, transaction, which is essentially supposed to be the safest of the safe, safe stuff, right? Um, you know, federal funds or even euro dollars and things like that, those are unsecured forms, which means two banks get together. I lend you cash unsecured, which means we have a handshake basis. There's really nothing more than that. Uh, if you default in the morning, that's my problem. Whereas a repo transaction is I'll, I'll lend you cash, but you give me some form of financial security in, as collateral in, 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 in the meantime, which means you can, let, you can borrow the cash at a much cheaper rate, or at least a significantly cheaper rate. And I'm also protected because if you default in the morning when the transaction unwinds, you don't want to give my cash back. I can seize your collateral and sell it into the marketplace. And what that means is all I care about in terms of the collateral you're post to me is what are the liquidity characteristics of that financial instrument? Because all I care about is if you default, I need to be able to sell that instrument in the morning at a reliable, predictable price so that I don't lose any of my money. Because this is the most, this is supposed to be the safest the safest uh, form of interbank uh, transfers and borrowing. So the liquidity characteristics of the instruments of the collateral are paramount to everything, which is why you know uh, sovereign bonds like U.S. Treasuries or German bonds are the best of the best collateral. And it also means that the, the most liquid forms of those, those uh, asset classes are the best of the best of the best because repo counterparties know or are reasonably assured that there is a predictable liquid market if I have to seize and sell the collateral, I know I can do it and sell it in the morning, which isn't always the case with some of the more risky assets as we found out in 2007 and 2008. There was a lot of junk collateral that was being used in repo and it was assumed that the markets for those junk collateral would continue to operate relatively uh, predictably, even if they ran into trouble. And of course, right away early in the summer of 2007, most of the repo, repo participants found that that wasn't true at all. In fact, some of these, these uh, mortgage bonds that were being used as collateral had become completely and utterly unliquid, illiquid. So, you know, that caused the entire repo market to say, hold up here. We have to reevaluate the liquidity or our liquidity perceptions of all sorts of collateral up and down the line because we're not so sure that this stuff is liquid. If, if you're going to give me, you know, some form of uh, even a prime mortgage NBS, I don't know if I can sell it tomorrow. And therefore I'm gonna need something different collateral wise from you in order for you to continue funding your operations the way you had beforehand. So the re-evaluation the re of collateral in 2007 was a monetary shock that the system just could not absorb nor recover from. And in fact, it was the lack of collateral that eventually led to Bear Stearns being um, bailed out as well as AIG and Lehman Brothers. It was really a collateral repo event more than certainly more than a subprime mortgage event because repo and collateral and that kind of availability is central to how the system actually works. Okay, so let me, uh, so let me try to uh, say what you said, which is that banks uh, lend to each other on overnight transactions. And many times these are secured by what is almost money, which is US treasury bonds or uh, German bonds, and then what happens is that when this collateral, sometimes if it if if it if it if it ends up being not so secure as we previously thought, these funding markets in between banks and shadow banks collapse, and we don't have and we and there's sort of a liquidity crunch because the money we thought we had doesn't actually exist anymore, and that's and that, and that and that's what happened in 2008 when so many of those MBSs and ABSs failed, and Lehman's repo paper failed overnight on 15 September, and and that's what led to so many uh, the climate of fear and and and, and uncertainty uh, leading to the uh, which was the main part of the financial crisis. Is that right? Yeah, if you actually look at the financial crisis, in one big part, it was it was a, it was essentially a bank run 
the same as you know the, the waves of bank run in the 1930s, except it wasn't a bank run in, in the form of as it had been in the 30s, where individual depositors ran to their local bank to convert deposit liabilities into cash that banks didn't have. This in 2007 and 2008 was a repo bank run, which was banks were stripped of collateral that they couldn't meet. That was the, that was the part that became illiquid. And so it was an interbank run where companies, or, you know, financial firms, any number, any different types of financial firms that were participating in their markets, in these markets, uh, funding their activities, found themselves short of the collateral that they would be able to, and they had no way to obtain liquid collateral so that they could continue their, to fund their activities. And it's really, you got to think about this in, form, in terms of how, it, how, um, how financial, how financial uh, participants actually operate which is, you know, it's not like I want to buy a bond. So I go into the market and I buy a single bond. Like you or I, we, we got to go, we go, we call up our broker, we put cash in an account and we go buy a bond. That's not really how these things work. Um, financial firms and banks, dealers, all these other things, they have portfolios of securities and they have a whole variety of liabilities to fund them. And really their only job is to maximize the costs versus the return, as well as uh, minimize the risks on the liability side. So there's a whole different variety of funding options to these, uh, these portfolios of securities, which repo tends to be one of the most fluid, easy, and cheap, cheap forms of funding. However, if you're running a whole you know, portfolio of securities in the repo market, which means you're posting a lot of different securities as collateral in the, it, for these repo trades, it may be one day that your repo counterparties say, you know, this junk bond that you were using as collateral, and I'm giving you a 10% haircut on, I need a 20% haircut which means you've got to come up with 10% more of collateral of some kind, some kind of usable kind, or you've got, to, you've got to essentially sell some of your assets to make up the difference. It's really about dynamic portfolios of securities that cause all sorts of problems, potential problems beyond a simple single transaction. Does that make any sense? Okay, yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to say what he said and to ensure I understood correctly, which was that if you if your collateral collapses and you don't think it was actually as safe as it was, that leads to your funding markets collapsing, right? Essentially, it's it's there's no way. I mean, because the repo is sort of the, the last place you can go. Because in, in 2007, August of 2007, the unsecured, you know, federal funds and those those unsecured markets really broke down because mistrust, nobody wanted to lend in those marketplaces anymore, except for the, the biggest, most qualified names. So the only, the only market of last resort was repo. And you can't go into repo unless you have collateral. And if the repo market demands only the best of the best collateral, everything else is really not usable. Unless you have the best of the best collateral, you're screwed. That's really what we get into is the fact that, okay, I don't actually have the best of the best collateral available. So normally I would be able to borrow it at least um, because you can borrow collateral. In fact, that's a, a huge part of this is that Collateral isn't just owned, it's actually repledged and rehypothecated and reused all over the place. Um, normally, dealers will lend you collateral if you don't have it. And if you can't even borrow collateral, you don't have it in inventory, then you're stuck selling assets because you're short, you're short on your liability side compared to your asset side. And that's really what, the, what developed into the crisis was because people, are, too many counterparties didn't have enough collateral, enough usable collateral. They were forced into fire sailing assets, of course, which is the worst thing you can do because as you fire sale assets, you're selling into a, a really bad market, creating even more losses for yourself, which then creates the perception that you're risky, which means that in the repo market, they demand more collateral from you. So it's really just so it, gets it into this vicious cycle. Problem, then. I'm sorry? It becomes a chicken and, chicken and egg problem then where you don't have collateral and you can't borrow it to get collateral but to borrow it you need more collateral and so nobody has any money but but how does this how does this thing end does it end when 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 somebody puts a backstop on these markets or does it does it end when, when, when enough people go bankrupt and then uh, and then financial firms start to reduce their collateral standards yeah, well, I mean, the central banks try to step in by their various collateralized lending programs, and usually they, they re relax their, their eligibility requirements and their standards and things like that. But usually what you just said is how they end. When there's enough destruction, enough leverage destroyed, enough uh, overextended positions that get expunged, the system sort of slinks into a settled lower energy state, right? It becomes a, a much less levered 
position, which everybody, you know, reaches a new equilibrium that's destructive to the real economy, but at least it reaches a new equilibrium state where it doesn't just continue to collapse in on itself. Now, we had a similar problem recently in, 20, in March 2020, when everyone sold off the run treasury bonds. And to listeners who don't know, that means uh, bonds, that, bonds that, that weren't sold by the treasury recently, and that was, they were sold 10 years ago or 15 years ago. People sold off the run treasuries, and for maybe around a, a week or two weeks, uh, interest rates, yields on, on, on those treasuries went up. And there was a huge shortage for U.S. dollars. There, there was a spike in, in the Bloomberg dollar index. So why did that happen? And this, this seems very much um, related to the issue of repo markets you were telling me about. Oh, it absolutely was. And it wasn't just, you know, this is something that happened in October 2008, too. People don't realize it, that this is a crisis thing. What actually happened was, if you know, the Federal Reserve's view of what happened in March 2020 was that uh, U.S. dealers and foreign dealers were hit with a wave of foreign selling of, of off-the-run treasuries. And because these were foreign customers, dealers did not want to say, hey, take a hike. Because, you know, off-the-run, as you pointed out, you know, off-the-run means that there's no liquid marketplace available for these particular securities. But yet, the, the U.S. Treasury market is supposed, you know, there's 20-some trillion in U.S. Treasuries, but not all of those Treasuries trade. In fact, only a fraction of them actually do. So when foreigners sell uh, off-the-run treasury and a dealer buys it from them. It's really kind of an accommodation. The dealer's making a market in that treasury for their foreign customer because they want to keep their foreign customer happy because it's a really big customer. So when you have a lot of foreigners selling these off-the-run treasuries, what happens is dealers will buy them as an accommodation, but they don't want these things. And they know they can't really sell them, especially if there's a lot of sales going on. Uh, again, that gets into a distressed sales situation, which creates losses. Normally what happens is you try to repo the security that you just bought because you don't want to, you don't want to use your own money to buy it. You want to simply, you know, uh, transit or warehouse the security until you can sell it to somebody else. And so again, making a market. Um, in March of 2020, there were so many foreign sales of off the run treasuries and dealers bought a whole bunch as much as they could but then they found that they couldn't repo those securities either. So the repo market was quote unquote clogged, which, a lot, which meant that dealers were buying these securities, foreigners were selling them, dealers had to tell them no. So uh, foreigners were selling them in these secondary markets at distressed sale prices. Dealers themselves were forced to offload them in the secondary markets at distressed sale prices. And then the Federal Reserve came in heroically at the last hour and bought a bunch of these bonds and saved the treasury market from destroying itself. That's the, that's the mainstream view. That's the Fed's view of what happened last year. And of course, already in your mind, you should be asking, wait a minute, <laughs> we're missing something here. Mm -hmm. Why were foreigners selling so many treasuries in the first place? Mm -hmm. And why was the repo market not willing to, why, why was the repo market not willing to accept those off the run treasuries in repo? And the Fed has no answer for them, for these questions, nor does it want you to ask them because the Fed wants to play the hero, when in fact it is it, it, what happened last year in March 2020, effectively demonstrates how the Federal Reserve is not a central bank. It was this global dollar shortage that developed, which foreign reserve managers have over the last decade and, and more. Whenever they're confronted with a, a dollar shortage problem, they liquidate the reserve assets in order to try to, to uh, supply some of those dollars to their local banks that can't obtain them. So selling of the U.S. Treasuries to begin with is usually a signal of a global dollar problem, which, again, March 2020 absolutely was the case. At the same time, the repo market started to differentiate among collateral because the repo market was experiencing the same dollar shortage type situation, too, where repo counterparties were saying, we need to be very careful about the collateral receiving because we're not really certain we're going to be able to sell it in the morning at a predictable price. And that sort of breakdown started in the risky forms of collateral, like in 2007, 2008, only in this case in 2020, it had a lot more to do with junk corporates and things like that, euro bonds and things like that. And then that just simply progressed as one market after another broke down from this dollar shortage leading to market selling. Um, eventually that hit the treasury market where repo counterparty said, you know, this off the run stuff, I can't accept it in repo, even though it's a US treasury security, it's off the run. 
It's not a, it, it, the market for off the run securities is no longer dependable. I'm not even going to take that. I only want on the run stuff because I can only accept liquid collateral. So everything was sort of funneled by this dollar, dollar shortage first, funneled everything into a narrower, narrower, narrower subset of repo and repo collateral that's caused all sorts of liquidations and fire sales outside of it, as well as a huge premium on especially on the run treasuries, things like treasury bills. That's why you saw bill yields continue to fall. And at one point, they got to be even pretty neg negative uh, in, in the middle of March. So it wasn't the Fed bailing out the treasury market. It was because the Fed isn't a central bank, didn't, didn't stop the dollar shortage, which, which began. And oh, by the way, as you, as you pointed out, the dollar's exchange value, which spiked higher, is a telltale sign of global dollar shortage, because we've seen that time and time again, including 2008, when the dollar, dollar rises or surges in exchange value definite sign of a dollar shortage. So the dollar shortage forced essentially uh, reserve managers overseas to start selling their reserves off the run treasuries. That plus repo problems led to all of these other, uh, other actions um, that caused essentially another financial crisis last March. I think, I think what stopped it was that the Fed allowed all other central banks to deposit their off the run treasuries at the Fed as collateral and borrow money from the Fed. And th this was in effect a swap line, although they didn't like to call it that because it, it would be politically difficult to do so. But I think what actually solved it was the Fed gave foreign central banks money in exchange for their treasury collateral. Would you agree with that? No, <laughs> not really. The FEMA, line, the FEMA program, no, I, I'm, I'm not really a big fan of that either. I think what actually happened is, Number one, the Fed stopped buying treasury bills because up until that point, um, from September of 2019, actually October of 2019, up until March of 2020, the Fed's not QE program had exclusively been buying treasury bills, which had taken somewhere around 300 billion in bills out of the system at a time when they really needed to have bills in the system. So the Fed stopped buying treasury bills. And if you also look at what happened in the, the same week the Fed stopped buying treasury bills, that was the week the Treasury Department started issuing treasury bills by the bushel full. So I think the more likely explanation for what stopped the crisis was, was uh, the Treasury Department accidentally fixing the collateral shortage through nothing more than deficit spending or the CARES Act, uh, you know, getting ready for the CARES Act by uh, issuing a ton of on the run, best of the best treasuries. Okay, fine, yeah. I think, I think that makes sense. And my final question to you is about um, thinking for yourself and not getting swayed away by narratives. Because in, in this business, in, in, in every part of the world, but especially in this business, people are, um, people are attracted to nice stories where, where you know, they, pick the, they pick the facts that fit their story. And it's so easy to, to go on a very, very... On, on a, on a tangential part that is completely wrong to what's actually happening. And uh, what's your take on that? How do you avoid that? Do you, uh, do, you, do you have somebody who argues with you all the time and says, no, Jeff, this is right and, and that is wrong. But what's your, uh, what's your process to getting things right? Well, you just described economics, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, here we are still talking about bank reserves and QE as money printing. That's a narrative. That's not true. And really, it's, it's, you really need to pay attention to evidence and how things actually work. And if, if you continuously have problems and aren't able to figure out, put all the pieces together, then you need to say, look, my narrative's wrong. My worldview is wrong. And one of the most easy way to see, the easiest way to see that is nothing more than the interest rate fallacy, which is that low interest rates are not stimulus. Low interest rates are indicative of tight money in the real economy. So if interest rates continue to go lower, it's not because the Fed's buying bonds. It's because the market is wanting to buy the safest and most liquid instruments, which tells you something very important about safety and liquidity in the marketplace, right? In fact, that's that's really, you got to pay attention to evidence, um, in, especially nowadays, because you know everything that we're taught from the beginning, everything that gets reinforced day to day in our jobs and on the media, in the media, in our life, everything, it's all about, oh, central banks are central. They print money. They can do whatever they want to do. Monetary policies, the, the end all be all to all of these things. 
yet they can't explain inflation. They can't explain growth. They can't explain why we continue to have these dollar shortages. Why did they actually have to bail out the treasury market last year? Well, they didn't have to bail out the treasury market. They aren't a central bank. It's really about paying attention to how things actually are and putting things in together, putting things together in the exact right order. And it's, it's very difficult to do because some of the things I'm saying to most people, it's a huge intellectual leap they're not willing to make because again, I've heard this from the very beginning, myself, myself included, from the very beginning, you hear central banks, print money, they're you know, the center, center, the most important part of the system, monetary policies, incredibly powerful. So when you immediately tell them that none of those things are true, they don't want to believe you because it's such a big thing to, to make a big intuitive leap to make. And then on top of that, you say, well, what really is money is uh, this offshore hidden shadow world that's actually been the effect of global reserve currency for about 60 years. <laughs> People just think you're crazy. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's understandable why they would think that way, because the incentives are all aligned into not believing these things. Everything is, everything is supposed to lead you down the path where you believe in Jay Powell and everything that he does. And it's really when you start getting out of that mindset and thinking, maybe if, if, I think, if I look at the Fed as just sort of a domestic bank regulator that doesn't do the central bank job, and that this euro dollar system really is the reserve currency, and that means the banks are important, all of these things, all of the evidence starts to make sense, as does the way the world has progressed really since the 1950s and 60s. Mm. Now, my, my, my last question to you is, what career advice do you have for somebody who's looking to go into your world of macro research and, um, and, uh, and, in, and investing? Do you have any tips? Yeah, don't. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of the most absurd, uh, I'm talking about financial services, one of the most absurd industries that human beings have ever created. Because the incentives are all skewed and structured to the wrong things. It's not about knowledge. It's about, you know, how do I, I just want stocks to go up. I don't care how they do because when stocks go up, I get paid more. That's really all. So all I care about is if, if I want to believe that the Alan Greenspan's a genius and that's why stocks go up, then that's what I'm going to believe, even if it's not true. And I'm going to believe it forever because I get paid to believe that. And really, again, as I talked about at the beginning with my own, you know, my own career trajectory, it's nothing really has changed over the last 30 years where people are even less curious today in a lot of situations than they were 30 years ago. Nobody really wants to know how this stuff goes on. They want to believe in the Federal Reserve. They want to believe monetary policy. They want to believe that there's a smart guy in the middle flipping switches as, as needed to make sure everything goes as smoothly and as, 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 uh, <clears throat> as, as risk-free as possible. And so it's, it's really, that's what financial services is about mostly. It's about never sticking your neck out. It's about never having your own opinion and it's about going with the flow. So if you wanna be honest with yourself and actually take a, a real honest look at what goes on, then this is not the industry for you. <laughs> and that's true as ma of macroeconomics as well, where there's a, you know, an enormous incentive and structure, an incentive structure to make sure that you don't ask questions outside of the box because everything in macroeconomics is DSGE models. And DSGE models have no part, no point in them for, uh, no, pe no part in them for uh, a monetary system. Okay. Now on that very, very optimistic note, we're going to end this podcast. Uh, if you liked it, please do share it with your, with your friends. And thanks Jeff a lot for being here and providing a much needed perspective on financial markets. My pleasure, Prajama. Thank you.